Welcome to the celebratory conclusion of our Constitution Day conference. Once again, my name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the director of the Levy Center for Constitutional Studies here. And it's my distinct honor at the end of our annual conference to introduce the B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. Ken Simon was a generous donor to Cato and other liberty advancing organizations. My predecessor, Roger Pallon, still holds the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies here. And as it turns out, he was also a mentor and lunch companion to today's speaker, Judge Thomas Hardiman. Judge Hardiman was nominated to the US Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit in January 2007 and unanimously confirmed by the Senate 67 days later. Imagine that. <laughs> I don't think the vote would be 95 nothing today. Uh, not, not because any particularities of him, that's just the nature of the beast. Uh, before that, he served as a district judge for four years. In 2008, Chief, judge, uh, Chief Justice Roberts appointed Judge Hardiman to the IT Committee of the Judicial Conference of the United States. I'm not sure uh, what uh, Judge Hardiman did to annoy the Chief Justice to uh, get that appointment. And, and for his sins, he became chairman of that committee in 2013. Before ascending to the bench, Judge Hardiman was a partner at two Pittsburgh law firms after starting his legal career at the Washington office of the known sweatshop Skadden Arps. Uh, uh, he received his law degree from the Georgetown University Law Center, and he also famously worked as a taxi driver and dispatcher, but all that was before law school. Uh, he did not put himself through law school by driving a cab. But anyway, that's possibly the aspect of his background that attracted uh, President Trump's eye, as Judge Hardiman was a finalist for the last two Supreme Court nominations. Judge Hardiman will be speaking on the Roberts Court and judicial independence. Please. Thank you, Ilya, for that uh, generous introduction and for the invitation to be here. I'm especially pleased that uh, my wife could join me here today now that we're uh, empty nesters starting the new phase of life. Uh, Roger Pallon may be the only one here who appreciates just how honored I am to have been invited to give the B. Kenneth Simon lecture on this Constitution Day. Roger was kind enough to travel to Pittsburgh to honor Ken at the memorial celebration after his passing. And as Roger knows, uh, and as Ilya just mentioned, I had the privilege of knowing Ken personally. We met back in the summer of 2000 in Pittsburgh, and I was immediately drawn to the man's energy, intellect, and love of liberty. I don't know what Ken saw in me, frankly, but we became fast friends even though he was 42 years my senior. Ken and I enjoyed many wonderful lunches together. No subject was off limits. He taught me about history, business, and even law, though he wasn't a lawyer. One particularly fond memory involved Ken's profound disappointment upon learning that I had never read The Law by Frederick Bastiat. Ken was so distressed by this lacuna in my great book's education that he refused, literally refused to have lunch again until I read Bastiat. Fortunately, the brevity of that work enabled me to finish my homework quickly and our lunches resumed. It's hard to believe that Ken left us over 16 years ago. I hope he would be pleased with my remarks today. The only thing I know for sure is that Ken would have opinions and thoughtful criticisms to offer. As Ilya said, I'd like to speak to you today about judicial independence in the Roberts Court. Hamilton wrote in Federalist 78, there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers. Since liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone, but would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments, the complete independence of the courts of justice is essential. Hamilton viewed an independent judiciary as a citadel of public justice and the public security. But he knew the judicial branch, which of course he regarded as the weakest of the three departments and least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution, required greater autonomy than colonial courts enjoyed. For federal courts to be the bulwarks of liberty, judges needed more than an independent spirit. They needed structural protections to bolster their firmness and independence in faithfully performing so arduous a duty. 
So what were Hamilton's indispensable ingredients for an independent judiciary? Permanency in office and tenure during good behavior. I see the wisdom in Hamilton's insistence upon permanency in office. I think most Article III judges do. But my affinity for life tenure has nothing to do with comfort and security. Some may consider a federal judgeship a sinecure, but that is the corruption of life tenure. Properly understood, life tenure is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition for judicial independence. And judicial independence is essential to ensure that everyone who comes before the court is heard without respect to persons, so we can do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon us under the Constitution and laws of the United States. We judges protect liberty by our fidelity to the oath of office, which includes the timeless principles I just mentioned. And for over two centuries, judicial independence has made the discharge of that oath a reality. Court watchers and commentators alike have spent this past summer wrapping their minds around what they called the shifting alliances and surprise votes that marked the end of the last term. How do those regarded as the court's liberal justices prevail in almost half the cases decided five to four? Why have Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh disagreed in nearly half of those rulings? For those of us who have served as judges for a number of years, there's nothing surprising about all this. It's simply a function of nine independent justices of the Supreme Court. Now, whether you're pleased or displeased with recent decisions of the court, one conclusion seems indisputable. The Roberts Court practices and embraces the judicial independence fundamental to our founding. Hamilton believed that tenure during good behavior was the best expedient to secure a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the laws. And he hoped that independent judges would be an essential safeguard against the effects of society's occasional ill humors. After more than 230 years, our federal judiciary continues to vindicate Hamilton's aspiration. The idea of an independent judiciary arose within a broader conversation about separation of powers prior to the American Revolution. Hamilton and fellow delegates brought to the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 an informed perspective on English and American judicial precedents, as well, of course, as insights from Locke and Montesquieu. More poignantly, they brought their experience as colonists under the British crown. Prior to 1701, English judicial officers served at the pleasure of the king. Even jurists appointed during good behavior, who effectively possessed a judicial life estate, could be forced to forfeit their office for misconduct, whether real or manufactured. That appointment practice went unchallenged until 1628, when Charles I ordered Sir John Walter to surrender his post as chief baron of the court of the exchequer. Walter's offense, he defied King Charles's call for the dissolution of parliament. When his court sanctioned members of parliament for conspiring to resist dissolution of the commons, Walter's dissented. King Charles deemed that dissent treasonous and he wanted Walter gone. Walter challenged the king. Unlike English jurists removed before him, Walter insisted that his tenure was based on good behavior, so he could be removed only if the king's bench found that he had misbehaved. Charles begrudgingly allowed Walter to remain in his post. Although Charles later dismissed, every, uh, dismissed several judges later before ultimately accepting Parliament's petition for judicial tenure, quam diu se bene gesserit during good behavior. And while English monarchs continued to dismiss judges intermittently, the governing commitment generally remained. Judges enjoyed tenure during good behavior, independent from the pleasure of the crown. With Parliament's 1701 Act of Settlement, tenure during good behavior became part of English law. But the rules, of course, in the colonies were different. 
Early colonial judges served overwhelmingly at the pleasure of their royal governors. And other than Pennsylvania, no colonial assembly could impeach a despotic royal governor. England wanted it that way because the colonial bench was deemed so mediocre. Colonial bars lacked competent men for the bench. So Westminster's colonial office begged the best English lawyers to serve in America, all to no avail. King George III established tenure at royal pleasure in 1761 because in his view, the state of learning in the colonies was so low. George III, George III distrusted not only the colonial bar, he of course distrusted the colonies themselves, especially in the run-up to Lexington and Concord. Attempting to assert ever greater control, in 1772, George established a fixed salary for superior court judges in Massachusetts, effectively preventing them from receiving grants from local governments. That's why our Declaration of Independence charged, the king has made judges dependent upon his goodwill alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. To whom would judges be beholden? London or their local communities? So frustrated were the colonists by the crown's refusal to grant judicial tenure during good behavior that it became a feature of nearly every state constitution drafted after 1776. Though state constitutions varied in their models for selecting judges and granting tenure, judicial independence was ubiquitous. The 1780 Massachusetts Bill of Rights offers one example, stating, it is essential to the preservation of the rights of every individual, his life, liberty, property, and character that there be an impartial interpretation of the laws and administration of justice. It is the right of every citizen to be tried by judges as free, impartial, and independent as the lot of humanity will admit. It is therefore not only the best policy, but for the security of the rights of the people and of every citizen that judges hold their office as long as they behave themselves well and that they should have honorable salaries ascertained and established by standing laws. Impartial interpretation of the laws and administration of justice struck particular chords, of course, in Philadelphia during the summer of 1787. Prior to the Revolutionary War, Parliament was paramount. Whatever it said was law. This absolute sovereignty insulated legislative error from review. So English citizens had no recourse but for parliament to correct itself. Pamphleteers wrote about this dynamic in America, suggesting that an independent judiciary could correct the legislature. Delegates in Philadelphia took that proposition one step further. An independent judiciary could invalidate legislation that contravened the Constitution. This form of separation of powers, our checks and balances, did not meet the strict separation championed by Montesquieu. But as Madison argued in Federalist 47, such overlapping separation at least precluded the, quote, accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, the very definition of tyranny. At the Constitutional Convention of 1787, John Randolph of Virginia proposed that indispensable ingredient for an independent judiciary, calling for judges to hold their offices during good be behavior. Charles Pinckney of South Carolina and Alexander Hamilton likewise submitted proposals calling for judicial tenure during good behavior. Only John Dickinson of Delaware suggested keeping Parliament's practice of legislative address, allowing Congress to remove judges for less than impeachable non-criminal misconduct. Unsurprisingly, Dickinson was voted down seven to one. Randolph, Randolph thought legislative address would weaken too much the independence of judges, while Governor Morris, whose own grandfather had been removed as Chief Justice of New York after displeasing the royal governor William Cosby 
found the removal of tenured judges without a trial a, quote, contradiction in terms. And so we find in Article 3, Section 1, the judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. The framers thus constitutionalized an independent judiciary. So, after two centuries of experience, has the framework secured an independent judiciary? Chief Justice John Roberts assumed office right before the October 2005 term. And although the Supreme Court is often known by the name of the Chief Justice, of course, think Warren Court, Burger Court, Rehnquist Court, the first 13 years of Chief Justice Roberts' tenure, the court was often called the Kennedy Court. During those years, Justice Anthony Kennedy was in the majority a striking 70% of the time when the court split five to four. Immediately following Justice Kennedy's retirement, a host of commentators made dire predictions about what it would mean for judicial independence. Similar concerns were voiced following Justice Scalia's death, but they really took on an apocalyptic tone with Justice Kennedy's vacancy. Some criticisms were undoubtedly fueled by antipathy for President Trump, but they went beyond critique of the White House. They pointed directly at the Supreme Court itself. Here's just a sampling of what we heard last summer from the Washington Post on June 27. Justice Kennedy and the court have served as a bulwark for the rule of law in a world often set against it. As a result, his retirement will spark chaos. Things will get ugly, very ugly. The court's very legitimacy is now up for grabs. Two days later, the New York Times wrote, this moment seems particularly perilous for the court, long held in higher esteem than the other two branches, a growing number of Americans see it as infected by partisanship and are questioning its legitimacy. Once again, the New York Times wrote, for the first time in living memory, the court will be seen by the public as a party-dominated institution, one whose votes on controversial issues are essentially determined by the party affiliation of recent presidents. As summer 2018 turned into fall, the headlines told an increasingly desperate story. Powerful news corporations told us the following. The Supreme Court is coming apart. Stop pretending everything is okay. President Trump's nominee would bring a virus of illegitimacy and partisanship to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was America's least damaged institution until now. In his dystopian requiem for the Supreme Court, one Atlantic contributor captured the emotion in this way. Critically, skeptically, but deeply, I loved that Supreme Court. Where is it? Where is the court that claimed it was at least striving to transcend partisan politics? That court is gone forever. We will spend at least the rest of my lifetime fighting over its rotting corpse. No prating about civility can change that fact. The fight is upon us now, and the party that shirks it will be destroyed. Well, have these current concerns proved justified? Let's review the Roberts Court during the past year or two. But first, let me offer an important disclaimer. I reject the labels conservative and liberal as valid descriptors of judges. I agree with Justice Gorsuch that they are reductionists and they fail to capture the judicial enterprise. I will use those labels here today only as a reluctant concession to their widespread adoption in the academy and the media. During the October 2017 term, Justice Kennedy's final year, nearly 75% of the court's five to four decisions divided along supposedly ideological lines, and all 14 of them were conservative majorities. Last term, with Justice Kennedy absent for the first time, 33% of those five to four or five to three decisions went that way, 
just seven of 21 cases. And that's not the half of it. 10 of last terms, 21, five to four, five to three decisions, involved four liberal justices joined by one conservative. Let me say that again. Last term, nearly half of what has been called a conservative Supreme Court's closest cases were decided by so-called liberal majorities. And while Justice Gorsuch provided the swing vote more often than any other justice this past term, voting four times with his liberal colleagues, largely on questions of criminal and tribal law, he was far from alone in showing an independent streak. All five of the court's conservative justices joined at least one five to four decision when the liberal justices voted together. That's a first in the 13 years since Chief Justice Roberts joined the court. But there's more. As I noted earlier, this is a two-way street. Not only did the court's conservative justices join liberal majorities, each of the four liberal justices in turn joined conservative majorities. And as always, there were mixed alignments that defy any ideological explanation. As court watchers have noted, there were 10 different alignments in the five to four decisions during the 2018 term. 10, three more than any previous Roberts Court term. Twice as many as we saw during Justice Kennedy's final term. Justice Gorsuch voted with the majority most frequently, as I said, in 62% of all 5-4 or 5-3 decisions. Justice Kavanaugh was close behind at 58%, with Chief Justice Roberts at 57%. But even Justices Alito, Sotomayor, and Kagan, who were least frequently in the majority last term, still voted with the majority in more than half of all 5-4 to four decisions. To put that in perspective, the 2017 term produced 19 5-4 decisions, two fewer than this past term, and Justice Kagan voted with the majority in only 17% of those decisions, and Chief Justice Roberts was in the majority 89% of those decisions. To what can we describe, ascribe this state of affairs, which seems to be the polar opposite of the dire predictions of some of the pundits? Let's take a look at some of the most notable cases that account for those statistics. A criminal case likely to affect legions of the accused and the already convicted is United States versus Davis. In that case, the court held unconstitutionally vague section 924C3B of Title 18. That law defines crime of violence as a felony that by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person or property of another may be used in the course of committing the offense. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, began his opinion for the court by stating, a vague law is no law at all. Justice Kavanaugh, in a dissent joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Thomas and Alito, noted that tens of thousands of cases have been prosecuted under Section 924C. In their view, the statute could have been saved by the doctrine of constitutional avoidance. In another case involving criminal law, United States versus Haymond, Justice Gorsuch wrote for a plurality that included Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. At issue in that case was the punishment to be imposed on certain violators of their conditions of supervised release. According to the plurality, Section 3583K of Title 18 violates the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution because it imposes a mandatory minimum punishment when the district judge finds by a preponderance of the evidence, a mere preponderance, that the defendant engaged in certain criminal conduct. Justice Breyer concurred only in the judgment. Justice Breyer said he agreed with much of the dissent and opined that because supervised release is like parole, the Apprendi line of cases does not apply. Justice Breyer's opinion was especially significant to Justice Alito, who authored a spirited dissent joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh. According to Justice Alito, Justice Breyer's concurrence, quote, saved our jurisprudence from the consequences of the plurality opinion, which is not based on the original meaning of the Sixth Amendment 
is irreconcilable with precedent and sports rhetoric with potentially revolutionary implications, end quote. In the view of the dissenters, the Sixth Amendment applies only to criminal prosecutions. So it doesn't apply in supervised release revocation hearings. Don't be surprised by future spirited disagreements over the original public meaning of constitutional guarantees like the one I just mentioned. Justice Gorsuch joined his liberal colleagues in two other closely divided cases that involved the rights of Native Americans. In Herrera versus Wyoming, the court held that Wyoming's admission to the Union did not abrogate the Crow Tribe of Indians' 1868 federal treaty right to hunt on the unoccupied lands of the United States. And in Washington State Department of Licensing versus Cougar Den, the court held that the right to travel provision of the Yakima Treaty of 1855 preempts the state's fuel tax as applied to Cougar Den's importation of fuel by public highway for sale within the Yakima Indian Reservation. Justice Gorsuch concurred in the judgment in that case. In his separate opinion joined by Justice Ginsburg, Justice Gorsuch criticized the state of Washington for trying to get more from the Yakima than it had initially bargained for. It remains to be seen whether these cases, along with Justice Gorsuch's votes last year in Upper Skagit Indian Tribe versus Lundgren and Patrick versus Zinke, portend a particular solicitude for the rights of Native Americans. More broadly, it's worth watching whether Justice Gorsuch's Colorado roots influence his thinking on cases involving not just Native Americans, but also other Western concerns, such as water rights and land use. As I noted previously, Justice Gorsuch was not the only conservative justice to join with the four liberals to form a majority. In Gundy versus United States, it was Justice Alito's turn for the first time in his tenure on the court. That case involved the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, SORNA, in which Congress delegated to the Attorney General the power to issue regulations establishing registration requirements for sex offenders convicted before SORNA was enacted. Justice Gorsuch dissented, joined by the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas, deeming the act an unconstitutional delegation of authority from Congress to the executive. In his concurrence, Justice Alito didn't think Gundy was the right case to reconsider the court's non-delegation doctrine. He did, however, express a willingness to do so in a later case. In a highly anticipated commercial case, Apple versus Pepper, Justice Kavanaugh joined his liberal colleagues to hold that consumers have standing to sue Apple for antitrust harm caused by prices set by app developers who sell their product on Apple devices. In a much less newsworthy civil procedure case, Home Depot versus Jackson, Justice Thomas wrote an opinion joined only by the four liberal justices. The court held that Section 1441A of Title 28 does not permit a third-party counterclaim defendant to remove a case to federal court. And last, but certainly not least, Chief Justice Roberts joined his liberal colleagues in one of the term's most significant cases, Department of Commerce versus New York. In that expedited matter, which bypassed review by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, quote, because the case involved an issue of imperative public importance, end quote, the court prevented the Department of Commerce from including a citizenship question on the 2020 census questionnaire. Now, as the brief summaries I just described show, all five of the conservative justices joined liberal colleagues to form majorities. But as I alluded to earlier, this was not a one-way street, for liberal justices did just the same. Consider the 5-4 decision in Mont versus United States. The court there held that pretrial detention later credited as time served for a new conviction tolls a supervised release term under Section 3624E of Title 18. Justice Ginsburg provided an essential vote in support of Justice Thomas's opinion for the court, which was joined by the Chief and Justices Alito and Kavanaugh. In a patent case, Return Mail versus United States Postal Service, 
Justice Sotomayor broke ranks from Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan to author an opinion for the court holding that the federal government is not a person capable of petitioning the Patent Trial and Appeal Board to institute patent review proceedings. And in another five to four decision, Justice Breyer, along with Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, joined Justice Thomas's opinion in Stokeling versus United States. In that case, the court held that a state robbery offense that includes as an element the common law requirement of overcoming victim resistance is categorically a violent felony under the Armed Career Criminal Act. Yet another interesting line of division when we compare the votes are when we compare the votes of Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, who disagreed in nine cases. In addition to the Davis and Cougar Den cases already mentioned, they parted ways in a Batson case called Flowers versus Mississippi, and they disagreed about the presumption of prejudice to establish ineffective assistance of counsel in Garza versus Idaho. They also disagreed in Tennessee Wine and Spirits versus Thomas which involved the Dormant Commerce Clause in the 21st Amendment. They were on opposite sides in Gamble v. United States, where the court upheld its separate sovereigns exception to the Double Jeopardy Clause. Same is true of Mitchell v. Wisconsin, involving the administration of a warrantless blood test. They disagreed in Biostec v. Berryhill, a case involving evidence in Social Security appeals and a bankruptcy case involving the debtor's rejection of a license agreement in Mission Product Holdings versus Technology. And of course, there are perennial cases where the voting patterns of the justices defy any ideological classification. For example, in a voting rights case, Virginia House of Delegates versus Bethune Hill, Justice Ginsburg authored an opinion joined by Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Gorsuch. Justice Alito dissented, joined by the Chief and Justices Breyer and Kavanaugh. Following on the heels of Mattel versus Tam, the court in Iancu versus Brunetti held that the Lanham Act's prohibition on the federal registration of immoral or scandalous marks violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Justice Kagan wrote for the court, joined by Justices Thomas, Ginsburg, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. Dissents were filed by the Chief and Justices Breyer and Sotomayor. In the Gamble case, seven justices joined the opinion of the court. Only Justices Ginsburg and Gorsuch dissented. Similarly, in Biostec, the Social Security case, that was six to three, with Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Gorsuch in dissent. Finally, in American Legion versus American Humanist, the much-watched Bladensburg, Maryland Peace Cross case, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer joined Justice Alito's opinion for a seven-justice majority. Now, in highlighting these variable voting patterns, I am not suggesting a randomness to the judicial process. Judicial philosophy influences the work of each justice, and the most astute court watchers can offer some thoughtful predictions as to how each justice might rule. With less than one term as a guide, it's too early to predict how Justice Kavanaugh will decide cases. Although Justice Gorsuch has been on the court for just two years, his approach to criminal procedure cases has earned the votes of Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Those alignments are reminiscent of Justice Scalia's Confrontation Clause jurisprudence, as reflected in his opinions in Crawford versus Washington and Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts and his votes in Bullcombing versus New Mexico and Williams versus Illinois. Does Justice Gorsuch's vote for privacy in Collins versus Virginia portend future votes echoing Justice Scalia's opinion for the court in United States versus Jones, or his dissents in Navarrete versus California or Maryland versus King? We shall see. But perhaps the most significant question for the future is whether the Chief Justice, uh, and this was alluded to by Jan Crawford Greenberg in the prior panel, will the Chief Justice anchor the middle of the Roberts Court, as many commentators have suggested? Or will Justice Gorsuch continue in the majority more than any justice? Only time will tell. 
The October 2018 term of the Supreme Court reflects the constitutional structure perfectly designed for all nine justices to exercise independent judgment. And judicial independence is hardly unique to the nine. After over 12 years as an appellate judge, I've had the privilege of serving with dozens of judges and hearing thousands of cases. And I can tell you that in every single one of those cases, the judges with whom I served and I myself always exercised independent judgment. Cloaked with life tenure and salary protection, we owe fealty to no man or woman, just the Constitution and laws. Our duty is straightforward. We must adhere to the judicial oath with, and with the utmost solemnity honor our promise to administer justice without respect to persons and to do equal right to the poor and to the rich and to faithfully and impartially discharge and perform our duties under the Constitution and laws of the United States. I have every confidence that the justices of the United States Supreme Court, the judges of the United States Courts of Appeals, and the judges of the United States District Courts will continue to do just that. Thank you. Do you want to keep standing or okay. your questions from there? What do you prefer? Do you want I'll me to stand. point to people? I'll stand. Yeah, sure. Okay. okay. All right. Um, Judge Hardiman has agreed to take some questions. Uh, I will. Take point. doesn't necessarily mean answer, <laughs> entertain. <laughs> while, while people think about what they might want to ask, I want to uh, take my prerogative to ask the first one, and that is um, the story you tell and the, the title of your talk is about judicial independence. And I think very few people would question judicial independence in the sense that someone, whether on your court or on the Supreme Court, is beholden to either the White House or congressional leaders or anybody like that. Uh, but Surely, there is some truth to the charge that there are conservatives and liberals or Trump judges and Obama judges in the sense that given the culmination of uh, trends that we've seen with diverging interpretive theories mapping onto partisan preferences with parties of increasing ideological sorting, um, you know, the, the, the president who's going to appoint, given the nature of the Senate, uh, if he has a majority, um, is, is going to be radically different depending on which party is in power. It, that seems hard to argue with, but what do you do with that? I mean, I don't know whether it's not necessarily a question of independence, but it does go to the concern that a lot of people have about politicization uh, of the judiciary. So what, what exactly is the question there? I, you, you've, <laughs> you've, you've covered it. I'm, I'm going to put my lawyer hat on and, and cross-examine you a little bit. What's... Uh, I mean, you said a lot of things, some of which I agree with, some not so much. But what, uh, I mean, if you're asking me, does judicial philosophy matter? Sure. And I, I adverted to that. I mean, judicial philosophy matters. A, someone who calls himself a living constitutionalist will have a different approach to cases than someone who calls themselves an originalist or perhaps a textualist, right? So, so. Uh, judicial philosophy matters, but I reject the conservative liberal uh, labels, and, and I think most judges consider them to some extent epithets because it, it just bespeaks a politicization of what we do that I don't have in my work and I, I haven't seen in my colleagues' work. We, we review these cases, we review the facts, we review the law, and we make uh, an independent call based on the facts and the law. And look, for inferior judges like myself, uh, you know, your judicial philosophy doesn't necessarily matter in most cases because we're, we're doing precisely what the Supreme Court has, has told us to do. That's, that's part of our oath. Um, does that... Is, Sure, I just wanted, to get, just wanted to get the conversation going. I'm sure there'll be plenty of follow-ups yeah. in the audience. Uh, Roger up front. Please uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, announce yourself and any identification and actually ask a question and don't, don't make a speech. Roger in the front row right here, front row. 
I don't have to worry about Ken having planted this question, do I? <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. Uh, Judge Hardiman, first of all, thank you very much for splendid uh, talk. I'm sure that Ken would be very proud of, uh, of what you have presented here today in his honor. Um, I want to pick up on the concluding uh, points uh, to your talk on judicial independence, um, especially where you spoke about the importance of judges being neutral as between the rich and the poor and so forth, and ask you to make a comment, if you can, about the developments we've been seeing in the judicial confirmation process. I have in mind in particular in the hearings for Judge Gorsuch when the ranking member, Diane Feinstein, opened her uh, comments before uh, directed to uh, then Judge Gorsuch by asking, how is it that we can be confident that you won't rule for the corporation, that you will be for the little man? That strikes me as asking Lady Justice to remove her blindfold and rule on the basis of the parties before her rather than the law. And yet, in these hearings, we have seen that kind of mindset repeatedly. And I'm wondering if you could say a few things about this kind of development, because it is a direct attack, in my judgment, on the rule of law. Well, I guess the first thing I'll say is that I'm glad I went through the confirmation process in 2007. Um, you know, I, I think it's all about fidelity to the oath, Roger. You know, uh, if someone asks us to favor the rich, we're violating, and we agree, we're violating the oath. Uh, if they ask us to favor the poor, we're violating the oath. Um, individuals don't get a thumb on the scale against corporations and, and vice versa. I mean, no, nobody gets a thumb on the scale. The whole point of the scales is that they're perfectly evenly balanced. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, that we, if, if we're taking our oath seriously, and I do, and, and I, I know all my colleagues do, um, you're just making an honest call based on the facts and the law. Sometimes the little guy wins, sometimes the little guy loses. Sometimes, uh, I mean, probably the most common sort of teaching moment or disagreement I have had with my law clerks during my time on the appellate court, and a couple of them are here, they can, they can correct me if, if I misspeak, but I, I've said to clerks more than probably a dozen times, well, if I could put on my chancellor in equity hat, this case might come out differently. And as a trial lawyer, a, a reformed trial lawyer is what I like to call myself, uh, you know, there's an important distinction when you're, when you're in equity and when you're in law. And as a trial judge, I had more power when I was acting in, in an equitable matter rather than a legal matter. I think that's what the law equity, you know, I know we don't have the formal distinction between the law side of the court and the equity side of court. That's been gone for a long time. But when someone brings an action in equity, the trial judge is supposed to expand his or her view, I think, as opposed to when a case is, is a traditional legal case. So. The back row, and then we'll go right back to the front. Uh, good evening, Judge Bob Fitzpatrick. I'm a practicing lawyer here in DC. Um, a little bit off your central theme. I'd be interested in what you have seen over the years as a good oral argument and what you see as a bad oral argument. Well, that's a great question. Um, one of the most fun things about, about having law clerks who are, are typically recent law school graduates is they usually, even though they're shockingly bright, shockingly talented, 
um, there's usually some degree of insecurity. Well, this is really hard. I can't imagine going in and arguing a case. That is pretty quickly dispelled after they come to some arguments. <laughs> um, they will inevitably come up and say, gee, I, I, I think I could do that. I'd say, well, I don't want you to do that. I want you to do better than that. Um, you know, we see, we see some of the most extraordinary, brilliant arguments, and we see some that are not. Um, what makes a good argument is, uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll just sort of tell you what makes a bad argument, and if you need more, I'll, I'll follow up. So some of the patterns we see that make for bad arguments are, and again, I, I think I could say this as a formal trial, former trial lawyer and trial judge, and I, I love being a trial judge, but this guy shows up, oral argument. Like, oh boy, we got a trial lawyer in the house. <laughs> he's waving, he's gesticulating, he's making arguments with great pathos, you know? And every time I go to the law schools to talk to the first year class, I say, look, you know, logos, ethos, pathos. There ain't a lot of pathos in the courts of appeals. We need to hear logos. We want you to have the facts buttoned down, we want you to know the law, and we want you to make a logical argument as to why your side wins. And to go back to Roger's point, you know, sometimes the good guy, the nice guy, the little guy or gal, doesn't have the facts and law on his or her side. Um, so we get a lot of sort of trial lawyers not understanding that the appellate venue is, is quite different. Um, another pet peeve is lawyers who don't ask a question excuse me, don't answer our questions. Another pet peeve is when you begin a question that says, let me give you a hypothetical. Suppose, and then you give them a hypothetical. This happened, I think, just last week. The answer is, judge, that's not this case. <laughs> let me try that again. Let me give you a hypothetical. <laughs> uh, so um, it's all about preparation. Um, you know, we. And, and to, give, to give the lawyers a break, our court is very difficult. Um, most lawyers come out of our court feeling like they were beaten up, perhaps unfairly. We do not have as many arguments as a percentage of cases as many other circuit courts, but we are, we've done deep dives and we are ready to go and we're usually a very hot bench. When I'm presiding, I try to give the lawyer at least a minute of uninterrupted time, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, but you know, that 15 minutes goes by pretty quickly. Um, so it, it's all about preparation. And of course, um, I tell the, the newer lawyers all the time, there's nothing more important than scouting your venue, right? Before you ever appear in a court in front of a district judge, you need to get a scouting report on that district judge. What does she do? Does she let you approach the witnesses? Does she let you approach the jury? Do you have to sit at counsel table? You know, there are myriad um, practical questions that a lawyer should learn the answers to before he or she steps into a district court or a circuit court. Uh, and again, I think that goes to preparation. All right, second row here, and then we're gonna go on the aisle back there. Uh, Robert Shara, like many here, I'm not a lawyer. Um, thank you for your excellent presentation. You. you alluded in it uh, a couple of times to the extent to which uh, the American legal system draws from the English legal system, and I believe uh, quite a bit of the language in the Constitution is drawn from uh, English legal system. Uh, in the English legal system, uh, judges are subject to compulsory retirement at age 70. I'm not sure if it's all, all judges, certainly high court judges, I think it's all judges. So I wonder if you'd care to comment on the idea of a compulsory retirement age for That's a great question. I understand the motivation for it, but I, I don't like the idea uh, for several reasons. The most important reason I can give you is very personal. When I joined our court, I was a relatively young man. I was <laughs> 42 years old. I felt very insecure about being there. It was a very daunting prospect to join this Third Circuit Court of Appeals. I cannot tell you how many times 
my more experienced colleagues reached out to me and helped me. They helped me uh, at argument. They helped me with my opinions. They helped me in conference. The very first, uh, I hope I don't get choked up when I tell the story, but one of the greatest judges in the history of the Republic is Joseph F. Wise, Jr. from Pittsburgh. Our courthouse is named after him. He's a World War II veteran, was wounded in action while serving in Patton's army. So there's a Third Circuit courthouse named Wise and the Fifth Circuit courthouse is Wisdom. That's yes. great. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's spelled W-E-I-S. Um, Judge Wise, when I went on the court, was in his 80s. And as I was working, you know, I, we would have lunch together periodically. And uh, probably one of the smartest things I did was, for some reason, I really enjoyed having lunch with people a lot older than I am. And that's how my friendship with, with Ken Simon developed. Um, Judge Wise was a frequent companion at lunch. And he said to me, would you like some help with your first opinion? I said, absolutely. In his 80s, he came over to my kitchen. Uh, Lori probably remembers this fondly. He and I sat at my kitchen table for over two hours and went through every word, every line in that opinion. I cannot tell you how much wisdom, how much experience has been imbued in not only me, but all of the newer judges in our court by not only octogenarians, but nonagenarians. Judges Aldisert, Wise, and Garth served on our court into their 90s. They moved very slowly. Their eyes were going. They didn't lose any acuity at all. And there is an extraordinary amount of continuity, wisdom. The craft of judging is passed on from generation to generation. And I fear that a lot of that would be lost if people had to step aside at 70. Having, having said all that, we do need to police ourselves, and one of the things we judges talk about is you need to make sure you have friends on the bench. You need to have close friends, friends that are close enough that if you are losing your ability to handle the job, your friends will come to you and tell you it's time to retire. All right, gentlemen in blue on the aisle, and then we're going to go to the gentleman in the second last row in the pink uh, tie. Right here. Your Honor, Jeff Reed, uh, no relevant affiliation. During the last couple of panels, there were some suggestions that uh, in a couple of instances where the Chief Justice joined, which would, I hope you'll indulge me, I'll call the liberal block, mm -hmm. um, that he might have been motivated by what was called an instant, a desire to protect or enhance the reputation or the institution of the court, might even do so in some other cases. My question is, is that an instance of judicial independence or judicial politicization? I don't know what's in the Chief Justice's head or any of the minds of, of the nine. You know, I, I only know what's in my mind, and I know what my colleagues say to me when we conference cases. And in my 12 years on the Court of Appeals, I don't recall any judge at any time ever saying, we ought to rule this way because it will help our reputation or the institution of the court. I, I've never seen that happen. All right, let's take a couple of questions. We only have a couple of minutes left. So the gentleman in the pink tie, then the gentleman holding his uh, arm up in the back, and then Devin. I think we'll just collect those three, and that'll be it. Judge Bill Hempler, American Financial Services. First, thank you for your service, and I echo... Uh, my friend's comments about your thoughtful presentation. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned the epithets of conservative and liberal, and I kind of share that. Uh, but at the same time, you're talking about judicial philosophy, and judicial philosophy kind of lends itself to, to one or the other, uh, it just kind of local vernacular. Uh, 2016, uh, Federalist Society and Heritage put forward uh, a list that, that you were on uh, at one point or another to, to crib for the American people. You know, there, uh, I still like to think that 2016 was at least in part based on the fact that the, the voters didn't want to see legislating from the bench but don't have the time to sift through all of the opinions of, of great judges, 
uh, and so have to look for these types of monikers. So, you know, f to get away from, and I appreciate you, you seeing those as epithets, but for the average Joe, how would you like to see the discussion play out for 2020 in terms of what people are looking for? All right, and then let, let's get these three questions, then the judge will reply all together. Judge, thank you for your thoughtful lecture. Uh, question, with respect to the topic of judicial independence, do you have any thoughts on the various methods by which the states choose their judges? Uh, you talked a lot about um, the independence of judges. The other side of that coin to me is the accountability. What do you see as the most important limits and checks on the judicial power? Wow. This isn't an exam. You don't have to combine Great your questions. answers to answer all three. In I don't have paragraph. to weave them into a haiku or something. <laughs> um, so, boy, the first question, um, yes, I, I guess I have to concede that the, the labels that don't work for judges are, I guess they work for some segments of the public. Um, but one of the things we judges talk about all the time, and the reason we try to do so much community outreach and try to get high school students and advanced placement US history classes and every, all those folks into our courthouses is to try to educate the public on the judicial role. And I, I, the judges that I know overwhelmingly uh, really blanch at the thought that we are lumped in together with the other branches of government. We view ourselves as so different. Uh, you know, we don't tweet, we don't protect ourselves, we don't, we're exposed. I mean, we, we've largely relied on the Bar Association and, and those of you here that are lawyers to sort of defend us because we think it would be untoward and inappropriate to say, well, you know, this person was untruthful about that opinion I wrote. So we, we let our opinions speak for us. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, although I don't like it, I guess I understand it. Um, but and the reason I understand it is because the public and the non-lawyers and the lay people have, are coming at the judicial enterprise from a, a totally different perspective than those of us who are in it. As for judicial independence and state judicial selection, I know a majority of states elect judges, I think it's a great aspect of federalism that there's some variety there. I'm not personally a fan of an elected judiciary. The thought that I would go across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 67 counties campaigning to be a judge is, is horrifying to me. Um, and I can also tell you that I've been to many judicial investitures for federal and state judges. They are remarkably different. Every federal investiture I've been to dozens of them, the only aspect of politics is a brief mention thanking the appointing president and thanking the home state senators, and that's it. Every state investiture I've been to usually involves a series of call-outs to the various interest groups on the right and the left that help get them elected because the newly minted judge thinks it would be uncouth not to thank all those people that gave your campaign all that money and helped you get the job. And I, as a federal judge, I mean, I guess it's, it's easy for federal judges to say this, but those moments when the hooting and hollering is going out to the interest groups at state investitures, I've always found them cringeworthy. Um, what are the limits and checks on... You know, just in 15 seconds, you know. <laughs> well, I suppose one is, you know, in impeachment and conviction. Um, no, I, I, it's, a, it's a great question because it's so hard to answer. I'm going to answer just for myself, not for my brothers and sisters in the room. The real check on how I behave is how seriously I take my oath and how carefully I review the facts and the law in each case. That is a self-limiting principle. If you stay within your lane and you review the facts and the law and you make an honest decision, I don't think there should be any limits on my power because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what we were hired to do. That's what we pledged, left hand on the Bible, right hand in the air, to do. 
So, you know, maybe Congress will, will decide that we're not staying in our lane and we need to be uh, encroached upon. I hope, that, I hope that doesn't happen because, as I said, I've, I've been doing this a long time and I've seen really thoughtful, honest judges. I don't always agree. I've written a lot of dissents. But even the judges with whom I've disagreed, I think we're making honest, studious calls. I just happen to see those cases differently. Before we thank uh, Judge Hardiman again, I need to announce that we have a reception on the uh, roof deck on the seventh floor. Be patient with the elevators. Obviously, there's going to be a jam, but uh, our staff will help you out. There are restrooms right before the elevators here and to the right of the elevators on the seventh floor. Uh, with that, thank you very much. Thank you.